0: If you were here last week, you know that uh, we have adopted as a church... Uh, the the Compassion Project as a mission uh, ministry to support during this time of the year, during the Easter season. Uh, We are seeking as a church to take on the remaining 500 unsupported children in Ecuador, a country that we have had a long uh, time relationship with. Uh, Many of you were able to adopt a child last week with your monthly support. You'll have another chance to do that after the service today out out at the the table set up in the lobby. But first we want you to see a short video of a woman named Cecilia who was once a compassion-supported child and is going to share with us uh, the impact of this ministry on her life.
1: Good morning, Chapel Street Church. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be here today to share with you uh, my compassion story. I'm so grateful to God for this opportunity because today you get to hear how God uses people to change the stories of our lives. I was born in Kenya uh, to a large family of initially 10 children. We lived in a village in western Kenya. My parents did not have a source of income. What they did was subsistence farming, uh, which means they grew things on the farm, and if nothing grew, then we did not have food. There were periods of time when there was no food, there were periods of time when we had food. Um, my parents never went to school, so they did not see the need to put any of us in school. And to add on to that, they were alcoholics. So many times they would disappear from home, they would go drinking somewhere, and when they came back home, it was all fighting and violence back home. Growing up in such an environment was difficult because most of the days we would wake up and not know what the day would look like. Would we have food that day? Would Where would our parents be that day? But I'm grateful to God because... Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans to prosper you and not to harm you; plans to give you a hope and a future." I'm grateful because one day my uncle came home and decided that he was going to help our family by taking one of my, of us to go live with him in Nairobi. He took me to go live with him in Nairobi, Kenya, and he put me in school. But he could not keep me in school. His reason being that he wanted to take one of us, put them in school, and hopefully one day this child will come back and change this family. I'm grateful to God because he put me in school. But him not being able to keep me in school meant that I would be in school for some time and then at some point I would have to go back home because there was no money to pay for my schooling. And I really desire to stay in school. I'm grateful because one day, uh, Compassion social workers came to our school looking for needy children, and my grade three teacher forwarded my name to them. They came and interviewed my aunt, and I got enrolled into the Compassion program. That is when my life began to change. I was not only able to go to school, but I was able to stay in school. Through Compassion International, I got wonderful sponsors, Bob and Colleen Staggs. Bob and Colleen Starks changed my life in that their sponsorship not only ensured that I stayed in school, but I could also go to the Compassion Project and learn the Word of God. I gave my life to Christ because one of the social workers of the project shared with me the love of Jesus. I'm grateful for Bob and Colleen because they wrote letters to me telling me how much they loved me, how much they were praying for me, and that I could be anything I wanted to be and that they were there for me. I'm grateful for their sponsorship because through that, I was able to stay in school. I completed my high school and proceeded to the University of Nairobi to pursue a bachelor's degree in physics. From there, I got a scholarship to go to Italy for uh, two years to pursue a postgraduate diploma in physics and I came to Memphis, Tennessee in 2011 to pursue a a graduate degree, (laughs) PhD in physics which, by the grace of God, I completed in December of 2015. I'm grateful to God because my sponsors did not just change my life, but they changed my family. I remember praying that God would change the story of our family, that my parents would stop drinking one day. And I'm grateful because through learning the Word of God, I was able to ask God to change our family. My parents stopped drinking and started going to church. My family, my husband and I, are also currently sponsors with Compassion because I know what it means to be that child on a packet waiting for someone to pick you up and speak hope and life to you. I've also started a mentorship program in Kenya for women in physics to encourage them that they can be anything they want to be because we have been through that process and they too can go through it. I'm so grateful to God because... The sponsorship did not just change my life, it changed my family, and it is changing our community right now. So as I stand here today, I'm just a testimony that when you take that step of faith and sponsor a child with compassion, you are not just changing that child's family life, you're changing that family, you're changing that community, you're changing that country. As I stand here today, I am grateful to God that this is a testimony that indeed, God uses people to change the stories of our lives that will not remain the same. Those children on those packets are not going to remain the same because God is going to connect them to sponsors today and they shall be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Thank you so much and God bless you. Good morning, Chapel Street Church.
0: Hope you were able to to hear... Uh, a lot of that story from Cecilia. She actually uh, shared live last night at our Saturday night service, and she uh, recorded that for us right at our studio at Kesslinger, And she's speaking to that group this morning. But to hear her story: grew up in poverty in Africa, and eventually was sponsored through Compassion. Got her schooling done, and then finished eventually a PhD in physics, and is a geophysicist with high position of authority in that country, and is now sponsoring children herself. What a great story. So you can find out more about how to sponsor a child uh, by going out to our lobby today. Be someone there. Kenton will be out there to explain it to you if you weren't able to hear last week. And we hope you'll do that later today. Well, I want to begin today with a little audience participation. It's been a while since I've done this. But what I want to know is something simple. I just want to know uh, what your high school mascot was. I went to Byram Hills High School in New York. We were the Bobcats. So that's all you need to know, is what your high school mascot was. Mark, I'm going to start first with you. Vikings. The Vikings. What's the name of your high school? Huffman High School. Huffman High School Vikings. You you want to jump in too? Uh, Rockets. (laughs) The Rockets. Okay. Vikings, Rockets. Let's get a few more. Vikings. Also, oh, you were Geneva. Geneva Vikings. Okay. Bees. The bees. Like the buzzing... Oh, the oh the Okay, yeah.
1: Kangaroos.
0: Are you kidding me? The kangaroos. What a scary mascot. Okay, actually, actually, kangaroos. You ever seen them when they when they, they yeah they're they're. How about you, Jeff? Panthers. Panthers. Okay, Panthers. Steve. Uh, Clinton High School River Kings. The River Kings. Okay. St.
1: Saint Charles Saints.
0: <laughs> the Saints. Yeah.
1: Warriors.
0: Warriors. All right. A couple more. Geneva Vikings. Another Viking, Another Viking. Vikings. Too many. Way too many Vikings. Well, those of you who know, know we we grew up in Batavia. My boys grew up in Batavia, so they're Bulldogs. So Vikings and Bulldogs have a little bit of a problem. Tomcats. Tomcats. Okay. Tomcats. Also Tomcats. Oh, did you guys meet in high school? Oh, very nice. Yeah. One more. One more here. Wildcats. Oh, Wildcats. Okay, that's a good segue. Uh, any of you watch the uh, college basketball final four? Anybody watch March Madness? Can you tell me? The mascots of each of the schools, anybody? The Villanova Wildcats, I just gave you a hint, the Wildcats, right? How about the Duke, the Duke Blue Devils? Now, I have a question. What kind of university names their mascot after a malevolent spiritual being? <clears throat> Actually, I did some research, and it's not named after... <clears throat> the devil, but after an elite troop of French fighting men in World War One who were called the Blue Devils fighting in the mountains. So still a little weird for a school started by Wesleyans and has a seminary. How about the North Carolina Tar Heels? You know what their mascot is? It's some sort of, it's a it's a sheep. It's a very angry Dorset sheep. <laughs> I had to do research on that name, Ramses. And the final one is the Kansas Jayhawks, which is a mythical uh, bird, a combination of a blue jay and a sparrow hawk. But team mascots are <clears throat> intended to be uh, that which creates enthusiasm and sort of the spirit of victory. If you think for a moment that symbols are powerful, even the great religions of the world have symbols. Uh, put the next slide up. Star of David represents uh, Judaism, has for uh, many centuries. Uh, you see the crescent moon and the star re- represents uh, Many Muslims identify with that symbol. And then, of course, for 2,000 years now, Christians have lifted up the symbol of the cross. Now, the question I want to begin with today is how, um, does, how has one of the most depraved and barbaric instruments of torture and death ever devised by the human mind, how has that come to represent life and hope and victory for billions of Christians around the world? We have just two weeks left, today and next week in our series on Mark uh, called Following the King. I can turn this one off, actually. I forgot. And uh, I want to give you a little timeline. Mark is coming right to the end of the story. We just have today and next week left, uh, and I want to give you kind of a timeline to introduce the passage we're in today. So if we go back to um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples, and that was an evening meal. So we can assume that was around, let's say, 8 p.m., and Jesus shares that meal. He tells them during that meal one of them is going to betray him. Uh, And then he changes forever the meaning of the bread and cup at the Passover meal. Let's say around 10 p.m. that night after the meal, Jesus is walking with his disciples toward the Mount of Olives where he's going to be at the Garden of Gethsemane. On that way, on the walk, he tells them that all of you are going to fall away from me. And, of course, they say, no, we won't. Peter says, I'll never fall away. I'll even die with you. And then between about 11 p.m. and about 1 a.m., let's say, uh, Jesus is praying in the garden. And he prays three times with great anguish. Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. We're told he prays three times and three different times his disciples, namely Peter, James, and John, fall asleep. And then let's say between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning, Judas shows up, arrives with a whole band of armed soldiers. They arrest Jesus, they bind him, and drag him off to a trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He's going to be tried for blasphemy there. The disciples scatter in fear, but Peter follows at a distance, we find out. Roughly 2 a.m., maybe 3 a.m., Peter's in the high court of the high priest while the trial's going on, and there he denies he even knows Jesus three different times. Say between 3 and 5 a.m., now this is all taking place in the middle of the night. Jesus is condemned by the high priest, and he's condemned for blaspheming, claiming to be the Son of God, which is punishable by death under Jewish law. But because the Romans were in charge, the Jewish court did not have the power of the death penalty, so they send him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, hoping he'll sentence him to death. However, Pilate can find no reason to sentence Jesus, so he sends him off to King Herod, the same King Herod that executed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Now again, middle of the night, all this is happening in secret, which was by design. It was all all designed to happen when no one else could know what was going on. Herod wants Jesus to do a few tricks for him. Jesus doesn't say a word, so Herod gets bored, sends him back to Pontius Pilate. Let's say around 6 a.m. or so, Pilate can still find no reason to sentence Jesus to the cross, but the Jewish leaders put great pressure on him. They say to him, you know, he claimed to be king, and we have no king but Caesar. So the threat is, if you don't sentence this man, we will send word to your boss, to Caesar, that you're tolerating another king. And so Pilate has no choice, so he decides to let the mob that's been gathered outside uh, decide between Jesus and a man named Barabbas, who will be set free, and the crowd chooses Barabbas. Pilate then sentenced Jesus to be crucified. So now we're at about between 7 and 8 a.m. in the morning. This has gone on all night long. Jesus is then beaten He's flogged with what's called the Roman uh, uh, flagrum, which was a, uh, an instrument of torture and death. It was a whip tipped with bone and metal designed to tear flesh off the human body. Men often died under the scourging before they even got to the cross. But Jesus is scourged, beaten, forced to carry his crossbar to the place of execution. And by 9 a.m., Jesus is already nailed to the cross. Now, the reason I give you that timeline is this is likely Friday, the day before the Sabbath, so it's a work day in the Jewish week. So by the time people wake up, by the time people are commuting to work, by the time they're going to their offices, Jesus is already on the cross, and they haven't even heard about it. That leads us into our passage today, Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, now in the ancient Jewish culture, they started counting time at sunrise. Let's say 6 a.m. So the sixth hour is about noon, okay? Mark tells us Jesus was nailed to the cross at the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, or three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, the first thing I want to point out that we want to see is the death of the king. The death of the king. Now, if I were to say November 22, 1963, uh, what comes to mind? Of course, uh, the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And if you were alive then, and I know some of you younger people re- will remember 9-11 like this, but if you were alive in 1963... Uh, my guess is you can remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard that news. You probably even remember what time of day it was when you heard that the President of the United States was dead. I was in the third grade, and I can remember about what time it was and the feeling around me, even though I didn't understand everything that was going on. Notice the detail in Mark's account of the day Jesus died. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now we're talking about the crucifixion. Now, just a word about crucifixion. It wasn't just an ancient form of execution. It was designed uh, over the, the centuries to publicly humiliate and intimidate whole populations, whole people groups. Uh, there were emperors of Rome who were known to crucify hundreds and even thousands of men at one time to demonstrate their authority and to, and to dominate the people group that they had conquered. One historian described crucifixion as death in slow motion. It was designed to kill a human being in as slow and painful way as possible. The first century Roman historian named Cicero wrote, Crucifixion is the most cruel and disgusting penalty. The very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. Roman citizens themselves often denied that their people, their government, ever executed someone in this way, but they did. Mark tells us then uh, between noon and 3 p.m., in the middle of the day, the sky goes dark. So the sky goes dark when it should not be dark. And this is literal darkness, but darkness is also highly symbolic in Scripture. If you remember the story of the Exodus, Uh, Of the people of Israel from Egypt. Remember that God sent 10 plagues on Pharaoh's Egypt frogs, lice, flies, boils, locusts. But what was the ninth plague? The next to last plague. And darkness came over the land. The ninth plague. And then God tells the Israelites to slaughter a spotless lamb, put the blood over the door frames of their homes, so that the angel of death will pass over them. And here again in Mark's gospel, we see the land goes dark in the middle of the day as the blood of the spotless lamb is spilled once again. Jesus then cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now, Mark tells us the bystanders think he might be crying out to Elijah. Jesus is speaking in Aramaic here. Now, the Aramaic word Eloi, translated my God, does sound a bit like the word Elijah in Hebrew. And Elijah was the prophet in the Old Testament who did not die. Rather, he was carried away to God in a flaming chariot. And there was a common belief at the time, sort of a superstition, that Elijah would then return at the time of the Messiah. But we need to see here that this is not a serious question being asked. These people saying this are actually mocking Jesus in his suffering. Matthew tells us that those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus here is not calling for Elijah. He's not asking to come down from the cross. He's actually quoting Scripture. Look with me at Psalm 22. Begins like this: "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Now, the forsakenness here has to do, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus. Becoming sin on our behalf. Bearing the wrath of God in all sin. But if we read further in Psalm 22, we see many, many more things. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And I, by night, but I find no rest. Let this cup pass from me. He prayed in the garden. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Not my will, but yours be done. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. This word worm is an interesting, interesting Hebrew word. It's a unique term that refers to a type of worm that was used to be crushed and to make crimson dye for clothing. Just a point of interest. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Let's see if Elijah will come down and rescue him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of that took place. But look how this psalm ends. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now, why would Jesus quote from this psalm? Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm written about the Messiah who would come to save his people. It begins with a cry of forsakenness and then points clearly in prophetic terms to the suffering, to the specific suffering of Jesus on the cross, but then ends with the triumph of of the king. Jesus is fulfilling his messianic identity. Prophet Isaiah says it like this in chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So in every detail, Jesus' death fulfills the ancient prophecy of Messiah. Back to our text in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark says at the moment of his death, Jesus utters a loud cry. Now, many see this as the last cry of a man dying in physical agony. But I don't think that's what it is. Luke, in his gospel, describes the same moment, saying, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. John, in his gospel, writes, and and when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So taken all together, what we see is that this was not a man crying out in pain with his final breath due to the physical agony he was going through. No, this is a cry of victory. I have finished what the Father sent me to do. It was a victory won in the garden remember from a couple weeks ago so first we see the death of the king secondly we see the work of the king I've told this story a number of times before but I always think about it at this point in the story of Jesus death when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old uh, my dad was pastor of a small church in New York and we actually as a family lived in a parsonage that was connected to the church building and uh, our family living quarters were separated by a short hallway from the sanctuary, and in that hallway was my dad's office. So the rule in our home was if if the door is shut, that means daddy's at work in his office, so don't go through there. If the door was open, we could run through, and that was our shortcut into the rest of the church where we would play and tag and stuff like that. So one morning, uh, I can't remember why, but we were running around playing tag or something, and that door was shut, but for some reason I thought my dad wasn't there, so I would run bursting into the, uh, through that doorway and find out he's in a counseling appointment with a member of the congregation. And I knew right away I was in trouble. And before I could sort of back out of the room, my dad went, motioned me to come around to his side of the desk, and so I thought, Uh, a reprimand was coming, or maybe a promise to deal with me later, something like that. But he surprised me. He turned me around to face the person on the other side of his desk, and he said, this is my oldest son, Brian. And then he turned me back around, faced him, and he said, what can I do for you, son? And it hit me, I wasn't in trouble. More importantly, I realized I had a, a unique relationship with him. I had access. And that for me, that door was never completely closed, because he was my father. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the curtain of the temple, and some of you know this, was an enormous uh, kind of tapestry, some 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, at least four inches thick. Extremely heavy. And it blocked the entrance to the most holy part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Now that was the place where the very presence of God, Yahweh, was believed to dwell. And in that place uh, was the, the Ark of the Covenant, the holiest possession of the nation of Israel. And in the Ark of the Covenant were kept holy memories. There was Aaron's rod, the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments. There were pieces of manna left over from the desert. And on top of the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. And that was where, one time a year, the high priest would cleanse himself, go into the Holy of Holies behind that curtain, offer a blood sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And at the moment of Jesus' death, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all state that this great curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the word torn uh, carries a sense of being something uh, being rended or severed, cleaved. There's a violent tearing apart from top to bottom, meaning this could only be an act of God. And it meant that the way to the very presence of God was now open. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In many ways, this is the cry of the entire Old Testament. Moses cried out to God, "Tell me your name. Show me your glory." King David, after the greatest failure of his life, cried out to God, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, remove not your presence from me." And this is the cry I think of our world today. The cry of so many. "Where is God?" Where is God with all that I see around me? How can I know God? How can I be relieved of the guilt that I feel constantly? Mark is telling us that we know God by looking at the man on the cross. On the cross, we see the God who is just and righteous. On the cross, we see the God who is merciful and forgiving. We see the God who loves. We see the God who bleeds. We see the mystery of the crucified God. In Jesus We see the one who opens the way to the presence, to the forgiveness, and to the salvation of God himself. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And that leads us to the third part of the story I'm calling the promise of the king. Promise of the king. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I spent... uh, a couple days down in Nashville, uh, near Nashville, visiting uh, her twin sister and her husband, my brother-in-law. And we flew there on Southwest. How many of you fly Southwest? Anybody? Oh yeah. So you know how it works. You know, you try to get on quick, so you get in the A group, so you get to choose your seat. So we got in the A group this time, which meant we got to choose our seats. And so we, um, we, we got to a row we liked, and I like to get an aisle seat, um, It's sort of for personal reasons, in case I need to have an emergency. Well, we won't talk about that. So, and my wife then gets the middle seat, so we sit together. And then you kind of hope that that third seat will be empty, so you have some space. That's how it kind of works. But it was a full flight. And so, uh, almost as soon as we had taken our places, this young guy comes walking down, mid-20s, late-20s, long hair all tied up, and what you call a man bun. And he right away looks at that seat next to us and goes, can I sit there? We say, okay, sure. We get up. He gets his spot. So there we are. He's in the window seat. My wife's in the middle. I'm in the aisle seat. And we haven't even taken off yet. And he takes out a book out of his backpack and starts to read. So I start paying attention to my stuff. I'm, I'm really not uh, paying much attention to what's going on over here. Maybe I'm getting ready to work. Maybe I'm trying to fall asleep. I can't remember what. And I'm surprised to hear my wife strikes up a conversation with this young guy. She says, oh, hey, um, what are you reading? or or I can't help but notice the book you're reading. So I kind of glanced over. I was surprised he started the conversation uh, with this young guy. But I looked at the book he's reading, and he was reading a a paperback copy of The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. If you know the book, it's a step-by-step apologetic presentation of the truth of Jesus. And so my wife has engaged him in conversation. And he says, well, yeah, a friend gave it to me uh, about a year ago, and I haven't read it yet, so I don't know much about it. And then she goes, well, it's a really good book. Lee Strobel's a great personal story. And she looks over at me and goes, you read it, right? And I went, mm, well, i read it. <laughs> Which I have. Um, and then uh, he says, well, I don't know anything about it, so I just got started. And you could see he was just like a couple pages in. And then he, he went back to reading, kind of clearly saying, I want to read this book. So we, we just kind of, that was sort of the end of the conversation. But I remember the rest of that flight, I kept thinking about that young guy reading that book. He said, I don't know anything about this book. I don't know what's in here. And I found myself sort of praying for that young man, that maybe in that book he would meet Jesus in some way. Mark says in verse 39, But when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Just one verse, but there's a lot here. So who was the centurion? We know that he was a professional soldier, the commander of a hundred, that's what the word centurion means, hardened by battle, and likely through a hundred or a thousand crucifixions. We know he would have been pagan. Up to this point in his life, he would have only thought of the whole pantheon of Roman gods, you know, Jupiter, the protector of the state, or Mars, the god of war, or Bacchus, the god of wine and harvest, gods that were impersonal, distant, and vindictive. It would have been utter foolishness for him to think that a man, especially a Jewish man, (coughs) could be a god. Even greater foolishness to think that a man executed as a criminal, hardly more than an animal to him, could be a god. But what had he seen and heard this particular day? It's possible this man was responsible for the arrest in the garden. We don't know for sure. It's possible. It's very likely he was present at the trial before Pilate because Pilate had to be protected. Uh, He most certainly was present for the flogging and for the details of the crucifixion. This was his command, after all. And he'd seen all this before, a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. And in most cases, probably almost every case he'd ever seen, the men being crucified cursed Rome and cursed him with their dying breath. But that's not what he sees this time. He most likely gave the order to drive the nails through hands and feet, and yet no cursing came. He watched as his soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and jammed it onto this man's skull, and yet the man did not curse the soldiers who did that. He witnessed the mocking of those who wanted to see him die, yet this man says nothing in return. He maybe heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He may have heard the interaction between Jesus and the two men dying beside him. Today you will be with me in paradise. He saw the sky go dark in the middle of the day. And he may have heard Jesus cry out, it is finished. But here's what I notice. Mark says, he stood facing him. He stood facing One translation says, he stood right in front of him. And I think this is saying more than his physical location. I think it's saying this man, called a centurion, whose name we do not know, faced, looked at, saw the man on the cross. Now, many people witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. We don't know how many. The Bible doesn't say But we know many people witnessed his death. Some were glad to see him die. Some were just curious. What's going on? Some mocked. And a few grieved. But this centurion stood facing him. And in that moment utters an astonishing confession. Truly this man was the son of God. Now two things here you need to see. First, this is highly ironic. Those who should have seen do not see. Those who knew the prophecies, those who heard him teach, those who heard, saw the miracles, who should have seen did not see. And the pagan Roman, who should not have seen, saw clearly. second thing to see is that this is the first person in the entire Gospel of Mark. We're almost at the end who clearly identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Peter identified him as the Christ, which means the Messiah. The Sanhedrin condemned him for claiming to be the Son of God, but not until right here do we see a person who happens to be the centurion issue this confession of faith. He is the Son of God. Now, I want you to remember how Mark started his gospel. It's been months ago now, In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what? The Son of God. So the whole gospel of Mark is moving from that first verse to right here today where we see this confession. Jesus surrenders himself to the scandal of the cross. Jesus bears the wrath of the Father on all sin. The curtain is torn from top to bottom, opening the way. And what happens next? A pagan Roman far from god confesses jesus as the son of god that's mark's point as i thought about this story this week story of the centurion i found myself thinking again about that young man on the airplane and it struck me that he's like the centurion centuries and cultures removed i know but still a centurion, meaning he doesn't know about the man on the cross. He doesn't understand what the man of the cross is doing and why. He doesn't know what the man of the cross will do in three days in the future. He doesn't know that the man on the cross is God who created him, loves him, forgives him, offers him a new heart, a new identity, a new destiny. He doesn't know any of that. But he has a friend who a year ago gave him a book. And he's reading that book that's designed to help him face Jesus. To see him. And if and when he does, the curtain will be torn, the way will be open, and he will say, surely, this is the Son of God. Now there are three ways, I think, for us to find ourselves in this story. First is, we at one time were the centurion. We were the centurion, far from God, lost and confused in a world full of false gods until we came face to face with the man on the cross. I pray that happened for you. Or we are today the centurion. Maybe today you stand facing the man on the cross for the first time in a personal way. And maybe today you'll see the one who bears your sin. Or, thirdly, we know a centurion. So, who do you know today? Who in your life who does not yet know the man on the cross? Who can you pray for? Who can you build a relationship with? Who can you love? Who can you serve so that one day he or she may see and may know the man on the cross? Because if the way opened for a nameless, hardened pagan centurion. The way can be opened for that person you're thinking of right now. you bow with me as we close? Lord, we thank you today for your word. And the story we look at today is in many ways so violent and barbaric that we want to look away. We want to turn our face away. But it's also so beautiful and so powerful we must not look away. So help us today and this week of all weeks to see, to face the man on the cross. And if there is one like the centurion in this room today, even one, who does not yet know the man on the cross, may he or she see and confess that surely this is the Son of God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.